<laughs> That's 2020 all over again. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm Batman. Do or do not. There is no tomorrow. Welcome to episode 143 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are... John Farthing. Andy Chandler. Peter Johnson. Dan Watkins. And I'm Hazel Chandler. On today's show, we have some lovely new reviews of what we've all been watching recently, or in some cases, reading, you know, books and that. So those readings include The Creator, Past Lives, One Piece, The Satsuma Complex, and because John hasn't come up with anything, we'll be giving him a special forfeit. Woohoo! <laughs> Do we want to discourage John from bringing things for review? That's what the forfeit's all about. <laughs> We are also revealing one of our most shameful gaps of the wall, as one or maybe two of our nerds watches an American werewolf in London for the very first time. So let's start the show. All right, so as you may have guessed, or maybe not, um, we're actually recording this remotely, like it's 2020 all over again. Woohoo! <laughs> Because we've had a little little bout of COVID uh, within the ranks, so we thought it was safer and the right thing to do to be separate from each other. I'm amazed that Peter had COVID and I didn't, because the things Peter does to me, <laughs> you would assume. Lots of sharing liquids. <laughs> why, why would I say liquids? <laughs> How are you feeling, Peter? I'm doing all right now. I think I'll be okay by tomorrow, but it's better to be safe. Yes. And we've got Dan back. I haven't seen you for a while, Dan. But you have been enjoying something recently. You've been to see something pretty special in concert. Is that right? Two days before we recorded this and a couple of weeks after we chatted about how great Jurassic Park is on its 30th anniversary, we went to the 30th anniversary concert tour of the film. So the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, in our case, were playing in full in front of a screening of the film. And I've been to a few films in concert before, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars Trilogy, Back to the Future. This one I found particularly hard to actually focus on what the orchestra were doing. And they were doing an amazing job, but the film is just so good that I kept having to remember that there was a live orchestra playing the music. And the score for Jurassic Park is fantastic, even more so when you're watching it live but it's been a couple of years since I've watched the film and it's so good. It's just a fantastic experience. <laughs> the concert is on tour throughout this autumn and winter through the UK. So if you get a chance to spot it near you, I do go and recommend it, especially if you get a violinist who has a cuddly toy dinosaur balanced on his head throughout the second half of the film, as we did the other night. He got a big round of applause. <laughs> oh, wow. That's impressive. <laughs> I do always find with these kind of theatrical experience things where they have the film with the orchestra, about half the time you do kind of forget the orchestra is there and just end up watching a very expensive screening of a film. <laughs> so I, I don't know what what do people do. I know I know we've all been to them. Do you, do you tend to watch the film or watch the orchestra? I try and watch the orchestra, but I always have to remind myself that there's a film there as well mm -hmm. and vice versa. I've never been to one. Um, I like to think I'd watch the film and just uh, absorb the, the music uh, through my ears, uh, which is my usual way of doing so. But uh, maybe, maybe you'd yeah lose part of the experience. Ideally, what they would do is offer you an immersive experience where they give you a violin and you can join in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Or you could just sneak a violin in. <laughs> now, where on your person would you hide a violin and the bow, John? Well, the bow would clearly go up the bow hole. <laughs> uh, the violin itself, I would just put over my face and pretend I'd been in some sort of terrible orchestra-based accident. What, <laughs> fell face first into a violin? Yeah, and got stuck in it. At least you didn't say double bass. The only one of these type of things I've been to was with Ian, where we went to the Doctor Who thing in, in concert, where they were playing scores to all the different Doctor Who episodes. Mm -hmm. And one thing that was quite fun is they had Daleks and Cybermen and all that sort of stuff stomping through the audience while they did it. So that was fun. Did they have a dinosaurs for you, Dan? I was half expecting the conductor to 
maybe dress up in one of those inflatable T-Rex costumes. That didn't happen. Serious business, serious orchestra. Uh, this guy had been personally selected by John Williams as a person. He is happy to perform his scores in front of audiences. They took it seriously. I had all the dinosaurs I needed on the big screen, including very scary velociraptors. You forget how frightening they are on a cinema level screen. Oh, yeah. Did he have a little glass of water on his podium that started shaking at the appropriate moment? Every time they plugged the double bass. I would love to think so, but we were quite high up in yeah. the cheap seats. Well, you'd need to be looking down on it to be able to see the ripple properly. Very true. Did you not have your um, cinema binoculars? <laughs> we had them, but the night vision for looking at the goats didn't work. I'm looking forward to we've got a future treat. By the time this podcast comes out, Andy will be fully immersed in the world of Hellraiser. Oh, yes. Yes, <sighs> let's talk about this. So Hellraiser is back in the cinemas. Uh, obviously, John is full of glee about that. So, John, you first asked Louise to come with you because you didn't want to be that pervy guy in the cinema by yourself. Is that right? I mean, I usually am that pervy guy. But... So there's nothing wrong with going to the cinema by yourself. Disney films and weird sexual fetish horror films are the two ones where you don't want to be a middle-aged man on your own. So you first hucked Louise into coming along with you and messaged the Nerdfest group with your seat numbers and said if anyone would else like to join. And the majority of us were sane and said, absolutely no way. Apart from one of us. Yes. I have lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so dedicated to the podcast that I'm planning ahead to create content. I did mention it. It's, it's an all-nighter of all 11 Hellraisers. No. No to this. <laughs> did, I, did I not mention that when, when you booked the ticket? It's surprisingly good value, considering it's 11 <laughs> films. Or maybe not, because only the first one is supposedly good. And um, I've heard the Hellraiser 5 is surprisingly mm, good. Yeah. <sighs> I, I consider myself an explorer going to a strange, dangerous foreign land and um i fully expect to regret this decision but at least i can write it down in my film journal and i have another film because i've uh, watched 145 films so far this year and i need to make it an even 200 or more by the end of the year or else i'm not allowed to enter 2024 <laughs> or to ever watch a film again i mean that's fairly doable we're like we're about three quarters of the way through the year and you're about three quarters of the way through your journal so I'm about to lose six weeks uh, to recovery from Hellraiser, though, so it's going to oh, be tight. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do some recommendations and reviews. I think I'm very, very intrigued to learn all about the creator. Maybe, Dan, you could tell us a little bit about that. I'm going to tell you about the creator, which is the new film from Gareth Edwards, and I'm going to tell you about <clears throat> it in as vague a way as possible, because I went to see it with Amy today. She knew nothing about it and got completely engrossed in it because cool. she didn't know what it was going to be or what it was going to be about. So it is set in the near future in a world where the West has rejected advanced AI and simulants and robots and things like that. But on the other side of the world, New Asia has integrated with AI. People in AI get along, they work jobs together, and there's a conflict between these two halves of the human world. Our protagonist, who is not called the protagonist, but he's played by the protagonist, John David Washington from Tenet, <laughs> is sent on a mission to try and prevent a weapon created by AI from being unleashed on the West, who have a big, massive space station that they want to use to destroy AI. Some stuff then happens, and that's about as much detail as I'm going to go into. What I will say, though, is there are lots and lots of things I really liked about this film. The way that it's been shot, it's almost entirely on location, but cool sci-fi design elements, buildings, robots, cars, other vehicles have been just put into these real locations so it doesn't feel green screeny or like it's been shot on the volume. There's a great part for Alison Janney. I won't tell you who she plays, but she is a badass. Oh. There is a central performance by a child and the kid is really, really good in that role. You really feel for them. Uh, there's 
just a pleasure in it being something original that's being created for the cinema. It's not based on a comic book. It's not calling back to any previous films. It's not relying on IP or source material. And there's just something nice about going into the cinema, watching it. And it might in some ways be not a cliched, but a fairly standard story. But you still don't know where it's going to go next because there's not a thing that you've read or a previous thing that you've seen that gives an expectation of it. You can just go in and watch it as a film, let it unfold with you. It's a lot of fun to do that. And it's weird that it's rare for a big budget sci-fi blockbuster type film at the cinema to give you that feeling anymore. And the creator does do that. I've kind of missed Gareth Edwards' films since however much of Rogue One he ended up directing. I'd like to think at least some of it because I love every part of Rogue One. So any bits he did, I must have loved as well. And it's been seven years since he made that. And it's just nice to have him back in the cinemas again. Now, I saw the trailer for this and uh, it looks like it visually it's going to be very, very nice. Um, but I thought it looks kind of generic. Um, Rise of the Machines, um, a chosen one grizzled soldier looking after a child against the odds. Does the film itself actually feel kind of tired in that, that kind of way? Or is it more, well, original? I wouldn't go so far as to say completely original. It doesn't try and subvert any of the standard lone wolf and cub narratives that it's quite clearly based on. Not maybe so much The Mandalorian or The Last of Us, but something like the actual film Lone Wolf and Cub, Gareth Edwards has said was an influence on it. It does some things where you think, oh, here we go, we're going to get the standard cliched, this is going to happen to this character. And it doesn't quite do that. Rather than undercutting it, it just goes off to a sideline and goes, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this slightly less predictable thing that you might not have thought was coming. But if you did, that's okay. Just go with us. If you go in expecting completely innovative, totally original storytelling, you might not get it. But if you want a neat little version of some of these archetypal, timeless storytelling, you'll get a, a slightly different version of it. And I think that's okay. That sounds good. Um, I mean, so long as it's not tiresome, seen this all before. And it doesn't have to be subversive. I can sometimes not get on with uh, things that are being too obviously, <laughs> hey, it's not what you expected. Um, so, yeah, that, that sounds like a decent balance to me. Mm-hmm. Looking at you, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> and these traditionally narrow views of what movies are allowed to be. <laughs> Peter, you said narrow when you meant accurate. <laughs> Like you say, Dan, it's good to have Gareth Edwards back. Yeah, it's been like, what, six or seven years? Yeah. He was asked about this, I think, on the Empire podcast. And the consensus is like the experience that he had on Rogue One was so diabolical and stressful that it's been, he needed this long to, you know, get back into filmmaking and fall in love with it again. There was a certain element of that because he just lost so much control uh, within the Rogue One process. Um, but he also said that um, around like 2018, he had just tons of ideas, um, this one creator being one of them. Um, and when he was talking to production companies, um, they were most interested in this one. But he kind of got a sense of who he would like to work with most because a lot of the production companies he spoke to was like, oh, yeah, we really like the idea. We want to do this with it. And he said during the filmmaking, during the production of this one, um, with the studio that he chose, he was waiting for that studio note that was going to be really daft and, you know, make the whole mm. film feel and look like something else. But he said he, that note never appeared. He, it sounds like he had full control over this one. Does it feel like a Gareth Edwards film? Like, does, it, does it feel like he's back? Yeah, I, I think so. It's better than his Godzilla, which was the film he did before Rogue One. It feels like he's got a very strong sense of how he wants it to look, how he wants it to feel. There is one very lovely little tiny nod to Rogue One. I noticed on the background of a departure board as they go to a travel terminus, one of the destinations might have been Scarif, home of the Imperial Citadel. Doesn't mean it's a space movie, but I, I did enjoy Scarif popping up. There are certain scenes that reminded me of similar scenes in Rogue One, images of troops emerging, uh, civilians in danger from warfare, uh, people in peril that reminded me of some of 
those scenes, particularly in the first half of Rogue One. So there's quite a clear sense of voice. Similarly, some of the big scale explosions and stuff going on reminded me of some of the better moments in Godzilla. I don't think there's anything in this film that's quite on the level of, if you remember the first trailer for Gareth Edwards' Godzilla, of the classical music playing while the soldiers all pre-falled out of that plane down onto where Godzilla was fighting in the city below, and everybody got really excited for what the rest of the film could be, and it turned out that was the best thing in the film. There's nothing quite on the level of that trailer, but everything in this film feels more complete, feels more polished than what he has been able to do within the confines of something that wasn't completely his own idea, if that makes sense. Wasn't his first film? Was it him who directed Monster, where he kind of did all the special effects as well? Yeah. Yeah, or Monsters, I think it was. Or was that the sequel? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was a great film, and the fact it was made on so little. Monster, Charlize Theron as a serial killer. Monsters, (laughs) Gareth Edwards. So how many Alison Jannies as a complete badass out of 10? I will give it eight badass Alison Jannies out of 10. And what is enough? She's Mm. a badass. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, that's probably worth it. And very zeitgeisty. Oh, very. (laughs) All right. Who should we go to next? Who took the squares on my screen? I'm just being distracted at the moment with the thought of monsters being like a group of marines hunting down multiple Charlie's Therons. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go top left. Let's go to Andy. What have you got for us? Um, Well, I'm going to begin with a joke. Uh, Knock, knock. Who's Who's there? there? Black. Black. Knock, knock. Who's there? White. White too. Knock, knock. Who's there? Brown. Brown who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Yellow. Yellow who? Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Orange, you glad the punchline isn't racist? Yes. I was (laughs) holding my breath there. (laughs) But it brings me neatly on to my recommendation is The Satsuma Complex, which is a book. For the first time ever, I'd like to recommend a book, which is a kind of papery thing with words on it. Woohoo! <laughs> Never heard of it, mate. <laughs> um, this one is called The Satsuma Complex, and it's written by comedian Bob Mortimer. It's not his Woo-hoo! first act of authorship. He has previously written an autobiography and a tie-in book for his fishing show with Paul Whitehouse, but this is his first novel. To the blurb! Gary Thorne goes for a pint with a work acquaintance called Brendan. When Brendan leaves early, Gary meets a girl in the pub. He doesn't catch her name, but falls for her anyway. After she leaves suddenly, all Gary has to remember her by is the book she was reading, The Satsuma Complex, How Meta. But when Brendan goes missing, Gary needs to track down the girl he now calls Satsuma to get some answers, and so begins a quest through the streets of South London to finally bring some love and excitement into an unremarkable life. So this is uh, it's a comedic crime thriller type of affair, but it's very laid back. Uh, it's got a gently unfolding mystery narrative that starts off playing second fiddle to a lot of fun character stuff, then grows in importance as the story goes on. The book's greatest strength is its cast of characters, who are simultaneously absurd yet grounded. Uh, Mortimer has a very nice way of describing clothing and behaviours in a way that tells you something about a personality, and the relationships between characters are rich, interesting, and varied. Uh, The protagonist, Gary, navigates a little world of individuals like Mr. Clown Shoes and Boiler Suit Man, having fun interactions with them in a way that gently moves the story along and exposes different sides of his own personality. The love interest, Satsuma, not only turns out to have an actual name, but is a compelling, well-rounded character with a backstory and motivations and problems of her own. Uh, Once you peel away an outer layer. No, no. (laughs) That's the crime part of the story. Ah. (laughs) It's very much um, a sore adaptation. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bob Mortimer and found great pleasure in the language he uses in the book. Many phrases are exactly the kind of offbeat, whimsical things that he comes out with on TV. Like, you're as dynamic as an abandoned fridge. And he was wearing a black puffer jacket and skinny ripped jeans, quite severely and randomly sliced, as if to replicate the damage caused by a badger attack. It all feels like the voice I'm familiar with from his TV work. The book is funny and quirky throughout, but also succeeds in displaying beauty and a richness in the mundane every day. It has real pathos as well. Uh, A big theme is lonely individuals finding people to connect with. If you like Bob Mortimer, I am certain you will enjoy this book. If you're not a particular fan, this is still a funny, mysterious page-turner that would be a perfect light holiday read. 
moment. So do you, when you're reading the book, do you just hear him saying all the words? Initially, when uh, you have some of those very clearly Bob Mortimer-ish phrases, it did make me imagine his face, but I very quickly got immersed in in the characters, in the world, in in the whole thing. It it, it fell away and just kind of captured me quite nicely. Daniel? I just wanted to be very happy that there are more book reviews on this podcast. We're slowly taking over. (laughs) So uh, my question is whether... If it's captured the the voice as you've heard on TV, would you read more Bob Mortimer? Would you go into his autobiography? Have you read that before? Or was this a a one and done? Do you think there's a a career in novels for Bob? Yeah, he's um, writing another one at the moment, which is going to be completely different and different characters, different story. I'll definitely read it. Um, I have read his autobiography, which was very good. And I've not read the fishing one, but I do like the show Gone Fishing. So yeah, I'll definitely read more Bob Mortimer. I read his autobiography in sort of one evening. I enjoyed it so much. I just picked it up and went through straight from beginning to end. So I very much enjoyed that. Did he have a short life? He, he was a solicitor who became a comedian. So, you know, living the living the dream. And we thought that was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently you've got to be talented as a uh, as either of those. Michael McIntyre. Good point, yeah. Oh, you've got to know somebody. That's there a terrible go. point. <laughs> but I, I tend to not really read fiction an awful lot. I tend to mainly read non-fiction. I, I, I want to try and get into fiction a little bit more. So I, this sounds like it might be a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. It's very mm-hmm. accessible. Yeah, how is it on plot? Because I, I am, I can imagine having a lovely turn of phase and writing some nice fun characters. But is just the is the plot there as well? There is, and uh, I did quite enjoy it. Um, it. It begins not very plot heavy at all, um, just more emotionally in the characters and um, his way of thinking and pottering around and talking to other people. But just as the book goes on, the the story just comes more and more to the fore. And um, you realise that lots of little threads and such have um, kind of come together. So I, I did like the story. It, it just becomes more and more story heavy um, as it progresses, which was cool. And I hope you don't mind me saying this, but um, I think you found the willingness to pick up a book in this, you know, digital age, uh, yeah, a little bit of a struggle. But you seem to yeah. pick this book up and not put it down. Is that right? As close to it as uh, could be expected for now. Um, Is that annoying when he's trying to make a meal, make love to you, go to work? <laughs> I had a third hand grafted onto my chest, so uh, it... Yeah. And I had to put on a, I had to put on a Satsuma outfit to make him notice me. <laughs> yeah, I did find it um, an, an easy read, an engaging read, um, more so than some other books. Uh, a few months ago, Dan recommended um, a book about uh, the evolution of mammals, uh, which I have bought and started to read, but I found it a little bit, not heavy, but I, I didn't quite get into it. And I just needed something lighter and fluffier mm-hmm. to get into. And I've read uh, a couple of Edgar Rice Burroughs adventure stories and uh, War of the Worlds, which wasn't very good. Don't read that. Uh, but uh, I found this much, much easier to just just pick up and, and get right on with. So I, I assume other people would as well, because other people would be better at reading than I am. Yeah, that, that book about the evolution of mammals is not heavy on plot. <laughs> <laughs> not so much. Uh, I will read it at some point. I do very much like the idea of it. But I've bought it, which is the main thing. It is, yeah. Support the authors, even if you don't read the authors. <laughs> exactly. They don't want us to read it. They just want us to buy. It's all a business. <laughs> so how many Satsuma segments out of 10? I would give it eight Satsuma segments out of 10. Or Tangerine segments, if you're American. It's getting published in America soon, if it hasn't just already been done. But it's been renamed the Tangerine Complex there, presumably because they understand Satsumas far than we do. I don't know. Something Satsumas like and tangerines aren't the same thing, are they? No. They tangerines are, not. are bigger. No. And everything's bigger in America, so Ta- hey, that's why. Tangerines are nicer, to be honest. <laughs> but if, if you're in America, if you're um, some of our legions of American fans who have not been alienated by John's um, accents and opinions, <laughs> then. Uh, tangerine. Yeah, look out for the tangerine complex. Um, imagine I said that in an American accent. <laughs> they should call it tangerine simple because the word complex might also put them off. And the <laughs> is too many words. <laughs> Peter, do you want to tell us about what TV show you've been enjoying recently? I've been enjoying One Piece. 
which is a truly bizarre new series on Netflix based on a long-running Japanese manga about a would-be pirate called Monkey D. Luffy. The original manga has run since 1997, with chapters released over 100 volumes, and 14 animated feature films have been released in Japan. It's the best-selling manga series in history. But I'd never heard of it until Netflix released their live-action adaptation last month. If you were put off by their previous attempt at adapting a manga, Cowboy Bebop, don't be. This is much better, and has already been renewed for a second series. Everything's told in a very colourful style. They've obviously spent a bundle to do justice to this, and it's paid off with an entertaining romp to cross the high seas, as the story follows the adventures of Luffy and his crew, the Straw Hat Pirates, who explore the ocean in search of a mythical treasure known as the One Piece, in order to become the next King of the Pirates. Luffy has a mindless optimism that's really endearing. Also, since eating a weird fruit as a child, he has the ability to stretch his body like rubber. The rest of his crew include Nami, a thief who wants to map the world, and Zoro, an accomplished swordsman and bounty hunter. They're chased by marines across the seas and are competing for the prize with other pirates such as Buggy the Clown, who ate a different weird fruit that allows him to split his body into pieces and control them as he sees fit. It's all full of that sort of weird stuff. Are you okay, Peter? (laughs) (laughs) Are you still having COVID-related hallucinations? (laughs) (laughs) It does seem like it. No, it's really good. I, I mean, I like things that aren't mundane and normal and stick into reality occasionally. And and this is all just full of that. The cast are really good. Costume design's really distinctive. They're trying to be as faithful as possible to the comics. So you get loads of people with weird hair colours and style, stripy jackets, and marine outfits that look like a Victorian school kid. And there's liberal use of wide-angle lenses to get that Looney Tunes cartoon feel throughout. I'm loving it so far. There are eight episodes in the first season. I'm just over halfway through. There's just something about his blind faith he'll win through that makes you enjoy rooting for him. And a cavalcade of larger-than-life characters and pantomime villains makes it fantastic fun to watch. Has anyone else seen it? I haven't seen it, but I have also never read a manga before. I don't know how well-versed you might be on manga, but does it remind you of anything else? The closest thing I can think of that it sounds like from your description is the Wachowski sisters doing Speed Racer about 15 years ago, just this crazy splash of visuals and madness. Does it remind you of other things you've seen, or is it just totally unlike anything? Speed Racer had its very own unique style. It was very colourful, and you could see they were almost replicating some of the anime shots. And this this isn't so much doing that, although every time a new pirate's introduced, you have this wanted poster appears on screen, and then he sort of, from behind the poster, rips the poster apart. They have these sort of Mm. recurring things that I assume must come out of the comics. There's sort of like a style running through the whole thing in terms of how everyone looks and how they behave that's different to you necessarily get in Western stuff. But it's, it's not inaccessible. It's not difficult to understand what's going on. I think you'd enjoy it if you enjoy something that's just like relatively simple fun, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it would be a very strong flavor. I could imagine uh, either liking it a lot or disliking it a lot. Uh, do, do you think that's fair? I think that's fair. I assume uh, bland doesn't fit well within your prescribed allowable boundaries for TV shows either. I love bland. (laughs) (laughs) I like things where nothing happens. But uh, sometimes things happening can be good as well, so I might give it a try. How long are episodes? Um, I don't know. I'm going to guess 40 minutes, but I'm probably wrong. Actually, lots happens per episode. So uh, you could say it's probably an action-packed 40 minutes. And where is it available? It's available on Netflix. Yeah, it does sound really interesting. Does the wackiness get in the way of you being able to get to know the characters? Or are they defined by the wackiness? No, not really. I would like to hope that Andy wouldn't be put off by any degree of sort of zaniness. But (laughs) again, you know, these narrow lines, it has to fit with it. (laughs) I was just going to ask you how many pieces out of one you would give it. (laughs) I would actually give it nine pieces of one. Not point nine, nine pieces out of eight. Very <laughs> <laughs> confusing. Yeah, it's a nine piece. <laughs> I reckon I will watch a trailer. Well, that's very generous of you. <laughs> that's all the commitment you're willing to make. <laughs> no offence, but I reckon I will avoid it like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> How wrong you'll be. Oh, God, the trailer's three minutes long. Jesus. Um, I, I, might, I might watch half the trailer. <laughs> 
All right. So, Hazel, what do you have for us? I would like to share with you a wonderful time I had at the cinema recently, and that was because I went to see Past Lives. This is the debut film from Celine Song, who is well-known in theatre land, I think. Uh, she's created plays like Endlings and even a live production of Chekhov's The Seagull using The Sims 4 on Twitch for the New York Theatre Workshop. I wanted to start with the director because the film Past Lives is quite a personal film for her. She was actually born in South Korea and immigrated to Canada when she was 12, as does the lead female character, Nora. Nora is actually the name that she gave herself when she moved. Her career name is Na Young. Na Young had a very close relationship with Hai Sung. She actually thinks that they'll, she'll probably marry him one day because, and I quote, he's manly. Um, but when she moves, uh, they're forced to be without each other and their lives go off in uh, very different directions. And I'll not go into any further details on that. It, it follows their relationship as it evolves um, over time. Uh, Celine Song said that she was inspired when she invited a childhood friend of hers over to New York, where she moved to after Canada. She was translating backwards and forwards between them and someone else. And it wasn't just words that she was translating, but also cultural references and different viewpoints of the world. It, for a film that's as slow paced as it is, it is remarkably gripping. There is so much going on beyond the words that are being said, and that is in large part due to some extraordinary performances. Greta Lee plays Nora, or Nayeon, uh, Tio Yu plays Haisan, and John Magara plays Arthur, who forms a third part of the triangle of this cast of three core lead actors. There is a scene towards the end of the film I don't think the characters say anything to each other for at least 60 seconds, but all you need as an audience is written on their faces. It's a film with some hefty themes. It's about connections, childhood, lost chances, things that we want to say to each other, but maybe we don't, inner conflict, immigration. There's also a beautiful score that heightens everything that we're seeing on the screen. I was so, so captivated by this film and got totally lost in the characters and the story. And Celine Song is getting some much-deserved praise for this debut film. And I cannot wait to see what she does next. Dan? One of the things I liked about it, which I don't normally, as Ian Mayer has told me off for many times, both on the pod and off it, I like my goody characters to be good and my bad characters to be bad. And the three main characters <laughs> in this film have moments where you really like them and you really relate to and empathise with them. And they all have moments where you disagree with them and think, why are you doing that? That's a really stupid thing. They felt more real than characters in almost any other film I've seen for a very long time. And I don't think I could pick one of the three of them that I thought, I know what I want to have happen to you. And I need that satisfaction as a film viewer of you getting what you want. They all just sort of drift in and out of my favor as I was watching the film. And I wondered if you felt the same or whether there was one character of the three that you attached to. Because I think just that complexity of them all was what was remarkable about it for me. I think I felt the same. I had no idea where the film was going or what the characters were going to do, but I did have in the back of my mind, I hoped something wasn't going to happen. I won't say what. I, yeah, I, I, I felt the same as you in that um, I really resonated with all three at different periods of time. I've been in situations where one of them has been in and then kept switching out. So all three of them, like you, were in my favour uh, at more times than others. But that's life. That's, you know, you, you make good choices, you make not so good choices occasionally. Uh, so that it just felt so real and so authentic to me. I saw it with you and uh, we had a wonderful time. I thought it was an absolutely beautiful film, brilliantly put together as well. Um, it had wonderful shot compositions, lovely uh, mise-en-scene, or have you say that in French. Um, <laughs> and it did a, a splendid job of providing information without being obvious about it. And uh, the, the, the two main actors wore all sorts of emotions on their faces that they didn't have to express verbally or in any other way. Um, yeah, it's really, really good. Uh, loved it. And the ending was absolutely gorgeous as well. Yeah. Greta Lee, who plays uh, Nora, 
she is starring at the moment in The Morning Show. She was in the second season. Her character Stella is also in the third season. And she is probably one of the best characters in that show. Um, I'm really enjoying the third season, by the way. Uh, and the episode that I just watched, she had an incredible scene. And it just shows how much depth that she's got as an actor. And I'm really pleased to see that she's getting all sorts of rave reviews for this performance as well. How many adaptations of Chekhov using popular video games out of 10? <laughs> I would say nine adaptations of Chekhov's using The Sims 4. <laughs> it's very, very good. All right, so there that's four recommendations or reviews. Mm-hmm. That's five minutes. John, Yeah. what's happened? I've been ridiculously busy and... Um, I had two things I was going to look at. So I, I watched Bottoms yesterday. Pervert. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Nothing particularly exciting. Um, and my plan was to watch the wonderful tale of Henry Sugar, the new Wes Anderson show that is on Netflix. And I put aside an hour of my time to go and watch that lovely short film so I could talk about it after I went to go and see Richard Herring in Newcastle today, which I believed was Doors at 2 and Show at 3. But when I got to the stand i was like why is the stand closed (laughs) oh i'm an hour before the doors open (laughs) so i lost an hour i feel like i have let my fellow owners down and i am whether you want me to or not about to strip naked shave my head (laughs) and be led around the streets of heaton while she whip me and shout shame (laughs) oh god well do we have to yes you haven't let us down you couldn't let us down. Well, However, oh. we still want to make you feel really bad for your lack of Thank effort. Thank you. Therefore, Dan, what has John got to do as a forfeit? We have talked so far today about both the creator and past lives. I need John to create for us his past lives. He needs to tell us what he did in his previous incarnations, how it ended for them, and the most embarrassing moment of each. I would guess if I was a Buddhist, I must have done something pretty bloody bad in a past life to end up <laughs> trapped in this existential hellhole of existence. <laughs> I was actually uh, Cleopatra. Oh, wow. In oh, a past God. life. Yeah, not the, not the Egyptian princess, the 90s <laughs> teapot band. Yes. Both of them, their lives ended by, with a snake, though. I believe. They did. Mm. Also, my past life. I was the man who invented popcorn. Popcorn. Joseph Pop, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, my most embarrassing moment was also my death because um, I actually invented popcorn just by eating a lot of sweet corn and then accidentally walking past something warm, <laughs> <laughs> which, which caused a massive explosion. So those are probably my two most embarrassing past lives. <laughs> You mentioned shame. There's about to be a whole pile of shame. Mm. Because occasionally on Nerdfest, we need to create a safe space for our nerds to be vulnerable and open up to some terrifying secrets. Secrets like never having seen Robocop before, never having seen Rocky, never having seen The Big Lebowski. Yes, friends, it is time for Shameful Gap. Now, today, the subject of Shameful Gap is John Landis's iconic and American werewolf in London. Which of our nerds needs to own up to the fact that they've never seen this cultural icon of a film before? It's an audio podcast, Andy. Oh, me. <laughs> shame. Shame. Also me, by the way. <laughs> Double shame. <laughs> How could you, Hazel? No, How could you? It's very rare we get to fill two gaps at once. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andy, why don't you tell us about the 90 minutes in which we jointly filled our gaps? Well, uh, (laughs) let's begin with a little synopsis, shall we? There's a couple of young American men, David and Jack, on a backpacking holiday in Europe who have inexplicably chosen to start their vacation in rural Yorkshire. Don't know what's wrong with them. They don't seem too impressed with the idea themselves and soon seek shelter from the bitter cold in a pub called The Slaughtered Lamb. They receive a fairly hostile reception from the locals, including Rick Mail for some reason, so decide to head back outside. Despite repeated warnings from multiple people, they wander onto the moors where they are attacked by a ferocious beast. 
Jack is killed and David wakes up weeks later in a London hospital because we don't have hospitals in the north. <laughs> Nobody believes that he was attacked by an animal and he finds that a cover story involving an escaped lunatic has been fabricated. David is discharged from hospital and taken home by a pretty nurse who is attracted to him. Uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, he stays in her flat, but is plagued by visions of his dead friend and fears that he will turn into a monster himself at the impending next full moon. And then he does. That's the film. Um, it's a 1981 horror comedy from, as you mentioned, John Landis, who is otherwise best known for comedies like The Blues Brothers and National Lampoon's Animal House. It does seem Jenny Agatha's character is rather crossing some ethical boundaries there. I'm sure if it was a man, that would be a problem. How many patients have you taken home, Andy, from your hospital? <laughs> because she took a, took a shine to them. So far, not many. Yeah. I mean, not many is not none, is it? That's... <laughs> None of them were werewolves. <laughs> that you know of. True. I did find the love story very mm. hard to believe. Um, it, it happened very quickly and also made no sense, and there was no chemistry between the two. So that was a little bit odd. I think I've talked before as a teenage boy, I enjoyed... Yes, I'm sure you did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought the film was going to be funnier than it was. There were a couple of laughs, but it really needed more, I thought, especially in the first half. So, I mean, I, would, I think I would say it's more of a horror than a comedy. I mean, there's been this history, which I'm sure John knows all the details about, of kind of trying to cross horror and comedy. Mm. It took it a while to work out where to strike that balance. And maybe they were still kind of finding their way a bit more then. I, I think it's one of the most successful horror comedies, perhaps more horror than comedy. Mm -hmm. I think the key to making a successful horror comedy is to play the horror straight and have the comedy around it. So for it to be successful, you know, the, the villain or the creature has to be a proper threat and taken seriously, but you have the comedy around that. So the, the first screen does yeah. that quite well. Shaun of the Dead does it very well. With a few exceptions, the zombies are genuinely a threat and frightening and not paid for laughs. Yeah, you still have to believe in them. Yeah. American Werewolf is a couple of years earlier. But would you, John, class Ghostbusters in that horror comedy or is that purely a comedy for you? Mm. I would go Ghostbusters probably more as a comedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The two characters at the beginning, Jack and David, they're walking through the Yorkshire Moors and they're kind of joking about um, a woman uh, back home, a high school student, and how uh, Jack was going to sleep with her. She doesn't even have a choice. Ha! Ah, consent. So funny. It, I, some of the comedy did not age well, I didn't think. No, mm -hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't terribly sad when Jack got torn to shreds. <laughs> um, I, I didn't particularly like the characters. I think yeah. maybe um, it was hoping that they would be a bit more kind of charismatic, charming young whip whippersnappers, yeah. but th that didn't quite land for me. We both said that we much prefer Jack as a zombie. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The makeup design for him in particular was Amazing. really uh, The way he was falling yeah. to bits. Yeah, that was yeah. excellent. I think it's an animatronic in maybe a couple of the last scenes. I think it's an animatronic rather than makeup, like the very, very end. In the palm yes. beard, yeah, yeah, it's all teeth, really. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the movie itself is famous for the sort of Rick Baker transformation effects, isn't it, as well, which were yes. considered fairly groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, they were incredible. And oh, yeah. he really took his time over it. It was very odd because um, obviously we've been leading up to this um, transformation and he was sitting in a well-lit room, like reading a book or a newspaper or something, and all of a sudden, mm -hmm. like, just screamed and then went on all fours. But it took the time to, like, every single bit of this body transforming from the eyes to the, you know, the back, the, the, the bones coming up in his spine to the hair growing. It made sure you saw every single bit of that and also how much pain that he was in and, and the extent that he was becoming less David and more werewolf. I thought that was amazing. It really was, yeah. prior to that, it would all have been done with cuts, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. spend another half hour putting makeup on and then cut back to him or do stuff in silhouette where he just, he stretches out a bit in silhouette. But yeah, it was amazing, the sort of transition stuff. Of all the classic monsters, werewolves seem to be the one that it's really hard to get right in a film. If you think of the <laughs> werewolf in the third Harry Potter yeah. film, it's not a good werewolf. The Twilight werewolves, meh. Um, mm. The just man in furry suit in uh, season two of Buffy. Is American Werewolf in London the best movie werewolf? 
It's a tie. I think there was the two that came out the same year. There was a Maker Wave in London and the first Howling, which also has sort of some amazing transformation effects, which were done, I think, partly by Rick Baker before he left to do an American Werewolf in London. So the same guy? Yeah. Well, I think the transformation scene in an American Werewolf is probably the most iconic. Mm-hmm. But it still holds up today. It does, yeah. It really yeah. does. It that did. was uh, very much the, the showpiece sequence and mm-hmm. um, w- with good reason. All the wolfy bits were the best bits. Um, the, the wolf attacks were um, kind of ferocious and frantic um, mm-hmm. with the, the Genuine terror. Um, and I was doing a little bit of reading about how it was perceived at the time, and generally I think um, pretty well, with the exception of Roger Ebert, who said uh, Landis spent all of his energy on spectacular set pieces and then didn't bother with things like transitions, character development, or an ending. <laughs> Roger Ebert was correct. I, I was going to ask about the end. What were your thoughts on the ending? Abrupt. <laughs> What's the song that came on at the end? It was like... Uh, Blue Moon. Again. Yeah, there's a, a few different versions of Blue Moon, and it was um, an upbeat It's like, Yeah, and just yeah. after the, the, the carriage had died, and I was like, oh, oh, oh my gosh. But I think, I mean, we talk, we joke about Taika Waititi having tonal whiplash. Like, this was this was more, I think. There was, like, mm-hmm. joking and then violent terror throughout, and it was a bit like, oh, 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 oh. I, I love the craziness of, like, some of the nightmare scenes and things where you've got Muppets and then random aliens yes. or whatever mutants attacking his family. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah the dream sequences are amazing. Mm. Speaking of Taika, I would still like him and Jermaine Clement to make their What We Do in the Shadows spin-off Werewolves with uh, Reese Darby and his little gang of werewolves. But I did have... Sorry, mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say that you were hoping he would be eaten by a werewolf. Mm. Not at all. I, I need the second season of Our Flag Means Death. Um, but I was going to ask Hazel and Andy, at any point during American Werewolf in London, did you expect to see a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand walking through the streets of Soho in the rain? Awu werewolves of London. I think that might be a joke that may, I'm going to guess, go over Andy and Hazel's head. <laughs> I'm, I yeah, don't understand yeah. that reference. That one's passed me by. <laughs> it's a song called Werewolves of London. Uh, Where's that, Warren, where's that from? Warren Zevon. Yeah, it is. Does that which predates the film? I think doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does. But it's basically the same tune as Sweet Home Alabama, as Peter was saying. So if you, if you can play one, you can play the other. It's just in yeah. a slightly different key, is it? Or I think it's probably in the same key, actually. It's just a ding, 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 ding. It's just basically that round and round and round again. <laughs> and what John's referring to is we used to play Werewolves in London in the band. And quite often people come in and we say, oh, just play Sweet Home Alabama. And they'd all go, all right, okay. (laughs) It would be fine. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it sounds like it's a mixed review from you. Yeah, I think overall I feel very, very, very mildly positive about it. I think I would describe it as a mm, slightly dull film that has some good bits. Breaking my heart. I, I, I thought it was fun. I really did. There were some things that I didn't get on with. Mm-hmm. But, um, the effects were absolutely spectacular. You know, I, I, I did have a lot of fun with it and I was engaged throughout. So I'm a bit more up on it. I mean, the characters weren't great, but the biggest problem I had with it was that the story, I mean, it's a very straightforward one. Guy gets attacked by werewolf, turns into werewolf, end pretty much. Mm. It, it did feel like it ended very abruptly in the moment, but also it needed another act to come afterwards. There were some story threads that just didn't conclude at all. There was um, the thing about the the original attack in Yorkshire being covered up and trying to investigate that, and that just, just got forgotten about. And there was this thing about his dead friend Jack um, is appearing to him in in uh, visions or dreams and uh, is trying to tell him, "We, I am cursed to walk the earth as an undead zombie thing until the curse of the wolf is ended. You have to commit suicide to do this. And uh, he, he he doesn't, and that that doesn't get resolved in any mm-hmm. way. That's just it's it's not a good story. Does he have to commit suicide, or does he just have to die? He does. He just has to die. But as as a story of him yeah. being implored by his friend to to save me by sacrificing himself, that that doesn't get resolved at all. Mm-hmm. He does try though. He's in the phone box, and he does try, but he just like, and then he just breaks down. It's like no. I, I just can't do it. Well, he's, he, he can see how traumatised he is, uh, and he thought he only had one option, but that option he, he, he couldn't bring himself to do. Um, and that's when he starts like yeah, yelling in the middle of Trafalgar Square and trying to get arrested. I do, I did think like the the trauma that he was going through was 
really clear to see on the screen. It was a really, really good performance. Has anyone seen the sequel? American Werewolf in Paris. Um, no. I've heard it's not as good. In it's, which case, it's, it's a terrible, not. terrible film. <laughs> yeah. Imagine all the things that were wrong with the story in the first one. And then don't be surprised by the special effects. Well, the effects mm. in very early CGI in the Paris one. Kind of like Jurassic Park, where, where you see a close-up of a head or a torso, it's animatronics. But where you see a full body, it's CGI. But the, they just don't match up at all. I mean, even if it was a well-regarded sequel, I wouldn't be watching it. We should end on a, a positive. So, John, tell us like, why you love An American Werewolf in, in London so much. What does it mean to you? Jenny Agatha in a shower. Oh, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> I tried. Like, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I tried. <laughs> that is all for this episode of Nerdfest. We'll be back soon. In the meantime, do leave us a review and follow us on social media at Nerdfest UK. John, tell us about the rewards up for grabs to our listeners this week if they leave us a review. If you leave us a review, I will take you back to the lovely Yorkshire Moors and take you for a pint in my local pub, the Slaughtered Lamb, <laughs> where we can leave a TripAdvisor review if you survive the night. <laughs> Nothing like a threat to end the podcast with. Until next time, you've been listening to... A man who used to be a werewolf, but is all right. No! A man who said that the US title of Bob Mortimer's book is The Tangerine Complex. It's not, it's The Clementine Complex. Do your research, people. Sorry. <laughs> that ruins the joke. Calling somebody Satsuma is quite funny. Calling someone Clementine is just calling somebody by a name. Well, <laughs> Americans don't like funny. Oh, blimey. <laughs> a man who is going to eat this strange-looking fruit and see which bits of me grow or fall off. <laughs> Ooh. A man who doesn't know whether to be more scared of AI or Alison Janney. And a woman who wishes in her past life, i.e. the one from a few minutes ago, she didn't ask John for his opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Ever. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As you get older, Peter, do you find bits of you do randomly grow or fall off? And it's, it's 50-50 mm. as to which. Not yet, but I reckon it's only a matter of time. <laughs>